according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are in Proverbs chapter 19 this morning. We're looking at verses 16 and 17, picking up where we left off last week. He who keeps the commandment keeps his soul. And uh, you have keeps twice in the verse. The Hebrew verb is shamer, that means to keep or to guard. And it's very important that we guard our souls. The Bible is clear on this, that if we don't guard our souls, then our souls are vulnerable, vulnerable to attack, vulnerable to weakness and, or illness or other uh, damage that can be done. Soul damage is a problem, and the Scriptures address that. So we'll be uh, centered on this issue once again here this morning. Before we do start, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask for our Father's faithfulness upon our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have this morning to assemble together. We ask for your faithfulness to open our eyes, to bless our time of study. Also, Father, we've got uh, friends on the way up from Houston. Pray for uh, safety on the road and, uh, and bring them to town safely. We look forward to visiting with them this afternoon and this evening. Look forward to uh, the good report from, from Ukraine. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So as we look at this uh, point, and I put it on the slide as point 10, and it really stands as a corollary to verse 8. When we look at verse 8 and we look at verse 16 in comparison, whereas Proverbs 19.8 addressed loving one's soul, uh, Proverbs 19.16 describes guarding the soul. So loving the soul versus guarding the soul. And that was the issue uh, both in both verses. The Hebrew word is nefesh, that applies to the soul. In 19.8 it says, He who acquires wisdom loves his own soul, loves his own nefesh. And self-love is, is biblical, so far as we keep it biblical, in, uh, centered on the commandments of God, the Word of God, acquiring wisdom. It's not earthly wisdom and it's not psychology whereby you build up your self-esteem and, and the I'm okay, you're okay approach to, uh, to life. And so there is self-love and he who keeps understanding will find good. And also in verse 8 is that shamer uh, imperative to guard understanding, to keep understanding. And that's what gets repeated now in verse eight, uh, 16. It actually uh, comes up twice because you're to shamer the commandment, and you're to shamer your soul. So he who keeps uh, his commandment keeps his soul. So uh, we talk about self-love, and we talk about uh, uh, soul guarding, guarding the soul. Shomer mitzvah, shomer nafsho is how it reads in the Hebrew. Uh, the shomer is repeated twice. Shomer mitzvah, shomer nafsho. And we're familiar with mitzvah anyway because of the expression bar mitzvah, the bat mitzvah. When a, when a Hebrew boy or Hebrew girl reaches that age, 12 or 14, whatever it is, and they, uh, they become son of the commandment or daughter of the commandment, as the case may be. I've got a Jewish friend in Dallas. She's a Scrabble player, and she's a grandmother, and uh, she's a Jewish grandmother, and she was so thrilled because um, she has twins, twin grandchildren, a son and a daughter, and they don't normally do them together. They normally keep the bar mitzvahs separate from the bat mitzvahs in different... But for the twins, 
they actually had a special uh, combined mitzvah for the <laughs> for the two of them. And uh, anyway, she showed me pictures, and she was just as proud as any as any grandma could be. So we're familiar with mitzvah, and that's what we talk about. Shamer is to keep watch over or to guard. This is the verb that was applied in the Garden of Eden when Adam was placed in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. Of course, he didn't keep it very well because he let the serpent in there and those lies started uh, the damage that they did. Also in Genesis 3, when they got kicked out of the garden, the cherubim was placed there with a flaming sword to shamer, to guard the entrance to the, to the tree of life so that sinful man could not sneak back in there and, uh, and uh, partake of that fruit. Then uh, the third use of shamer is the famous one in Genesis 4-9, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. And we are in the body of Christ most especially because of the way he designed the church as a, uh, as a body and as a family. And so this is what we deal with here in terms of shamer. Now, I think we got through, I believe we looked at all of those shamer verses, not only from, uh, are the mitzvah verses? Yes, we looked at all the mitzvah verses. All right. So now let's move on to points B and C then. The second half of this verse, so if we're guarding our ways and we're guarding our heart and we're guarding the mitzvah, the commandment of God, then um, that's, that's the positive. The second part of the verse though is the negative. He who is careless of conduct will die. He who despises his ways will die. And let's understand the parallelism on this. The first half of the verse, the second half of the verse. Because guarding the commandment is the positive and despising the way is the, is the corollary, is the negative. And, and they directly relate to each other. It, the idea of despising your ways, the idea of, of um, neglecting your, your lifestyle, neglecting your life decisions, the choices you make in your walk that uh, it's, it can't be separated from your attitude towards Bible doctrine. And that's the key. And I think uh, when people get sloppy with their Christian walk, when they minimize the importance of doctrine in their life, and uh, they say, well, I can still be a good person, uh, wait a minute, you're losing the foundation that shapes your, your entire existence. And so verse A, uh, when I'm looking at, at uh, verse 16 here, the A part and the B part don't separate them. They are linked. That's what the Hebrew poetry does. So careless of your conduct. Careless of your conduct is what happens when you're not keeping the commandment, when you're not guarding your soul. Uh, that, uh, that has to come first, otherwise it has ramifications in all of your ways. All of your ways. Now the verb to despise, or the verb for careless is baza, B-A-Z-A-H, which makes me laugh every time I read it only because of a, a certain sergeant I used to work for in the army. And his last name was Bazaar. And I always thought that Bazaar was a bizarre name. And uh, Sergeant Bazaar, um, I'll never forget him in, uh, for different reasons. Um, and it's probably not fair to associate that particular sergeant with carelessness or, uh, <laughs> or despising. I didn't particularly despise the man, um, but he wasn't exactly popular either. So anyway, it helps. And then it helps with my memory retention on, on what the verb means and, uh, and the issues there. It's number 959 in the Strong's Concordance. It is used 42 times, so it's a, it's a fair amount. It's not a, 
a uh, overwhelming number of, uh, of verbs to look for. But the, the fundamental idea of carelessness, the fundamental idea of despising something uh, demonstrates that you really just don't care. It's like a, it's like a totality apathy where you, you so despise it, you value it as worthless. Like when Esau despised his birthright. When you just, you look at it and, and honestly you, you just assign it a value of nothing. And because it has a value of nothing, uh, you're very careless with whether it comes or goes or, or if anyone takes it or, or anything of that nature. And so that, that speaks, I think, to the damage that gets done in our personal life. Because the ways here are plural. The ways here are plural. He despises his ways, the plural ways. And we all have all kinds of ways. We have, an, or if you don't like the word ways, substitute the word life. We use life a lot in English because we have, we have a home life and we have a work life and we have a, uh, all kinds of life. We have a public life. Maybe we have a political life or we have a, uh, uh, we have a sex life. We have a, uh, just think of all the kinds of lives that we have. And we have a personal life. Did I say that already? Anyway, just start listing all the different lives that we have or ways that we have. And the, and the God's Word should shape everything. It should form the, the foundation for how we think and how we make our decisions and the choices we make in all of our lives, our work life, our business life, our professional life, our political life the day after election day. <laughs> all right? And so you mean, you mean the Bible should affect uh, how we vote? Well, does it not shape how we think? Are there not priorities in, in this world that, that are shaped by the Word of God? And so uh, if, we guard our, if we guard the commandment and we guard our soul, then we are not careless of our conduct. We are not despising our ways, which is uh, what the verse is saying here. All right. So uh, let's look at Genesis 25. We see our first use of bazaar there. Genesis 25, 34, and I've already hinted at it. <coughs> and this is where um, Esau uh, is famished. Jacob had cooked stew. Esau came in from the field and was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. Esau was associated with red like uh, some, for some reason I, I've become associated with purple. There's just a color association with certain people for certain reasons. And uh, this is what Edom ended up with. So Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. And you wonder, was he just joking? You know, And yet he went for it. So okay, here we go. Sell me your birthright. So Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. What use then is the birthright to me? And none of this is, it's, it's all like they're joking with each other. It's, he's not about to die. There's plenty of food around. There's servants everywhere, you know, in, in, uh, in this extended family and clan. <clears throat> so what use then is the birthright to me? So you see the, the exaggeration. You see the uh, facetious uh, speaking uh, between brothers. I guess that's kind of normal. So Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. See, and this oath, this oath that makes it binding. So Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. 
Thus Esau despised his birthright. Despised his birthright. And this is the verb bazaar. This is the verb that we have in our verse today about being careless of your ways. Despising your ways. And so um, really this is uh, the, the tragic side effect of neglect of the Word of God. And, and believers are woefully misinformed on this or maybe um, they think that well you know it's no big deal. I've I've got, you know, I've got enough stored away. I've learned a lot. I can, I can coast for a bit. No, you can't coast for a bit. Because just when you think you're okay to, to ease up on your, on your Bible doctrine, on your study of the Word of God, uh, and you think you, you, you know enough, the testing's only getting worse. The testing is only accelerating. This world is going from bad to worse. And, uh, and, and we're told it's going gonna, it's gonna to be like that from now to, uh, to the rapture. So Coasting in the Christian way of life is really, it's not guarding your soul and it is a careless uh, careless thing to do. Numbers 15.31 Numbers 15.31 And um, context for this we touched upon this in Hebrews a couple of times because of the warning passages in Hebrews that talk about carelessness versus willful defiance and how easy it is to slip from one to the next. And uh, in Numbers 15, I think this is overlooked in a lot of teachings on the law. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. This is verse 27 of Numbers 15. Verse 28 says, the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when, when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel, for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, this is the willful defiant rebellion against the commandment of God. Whether he is a native or an alien, Notice that language, native, alien, as far as your citizenship is concerned and the land where you are and the land where you belong. Whether he is a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord. This is what willful defiant sin is. That you are substituting your will for the will of God. He has despised the word of the Lord, has broken his commandment. That person will be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. The point being, in a willful, defiant sin, there is no sacrifice for sin. You can't just show up with a goat and, uh, and offer a sin offering and have a Levitical priest intercede on your behalf and be good to go uh, for, the, for the next festival. You are cut off by your willful, defiant sin. And, uh, and I think that gets lost. That, uh, you know, it's, it's so easy, and we do, we have a, the first John 1 9 procedure, and we think it's so easy, all I gotta do is confess, and he's faithful and just to forgive me my sins, cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And we forget that uh, these willful, defiant sins contained consequences beyond, that were not remedied by the Levitical priesthood. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And that's the theme that the author of Hebrews picks up on. And he applies it to the church age. And says, we're church age believer priests. And what happens if we get caught up in willful defiant sin? 
And that warning is very severe. In Hebrews, I'm thinking about chapter 10 at the moment, but all of the Hebrews warning passages. Anyway, this is the context for another use of bazaar. And uh, the, the despising of God's Word is, it is what it is, even if we want to deny it, God calls it like He sees it. 1 Samuel 2.30 1 Samuel chapter 2 And um, of course we have Samuel in his youth and he's being dedicated to, to Eli and he's going to be given here into temple service. And, um, and then Eli himself is going to come under rebuke from the Lord and, uh, and the aspects there. In fact I think giving the youth Samuel to Eli was a grace provision in, uh, in light of the pending judgment to Eli and his house. But without reading the whole chapter here, um, in verse 27, a man of God came to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests? All these rhetorical questions, did I not do this? Did I not do this? Did I not do this? And and all you can answer is, yes sir, you did. Yes sir, you did. (laughs) And so when you answer all those questions and then he springs the why did you do this question on you, you're you're really speechless at that point. Verse 29, why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? And uh, yeah, Samuel, uh, not Samuel, but Eli's boys were, were terrible. And um, anyway, if you you can spot that in verse 22, uh, Eli was very old and he heard all that his sons were doing in all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. I mean, you talk about abusing your priesthood. And he said to them, why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? And, and, but he doesn't stop them. You notice that? He doesn't stop them. He's, he doesn't like what they're doing, but he just he has this stupid question like, why are you doing this? And um, anyway, uh, so God comes to him now with, why are you doing this? You see the, the, the beauty of that approach that God takes here. Anyway, you honor your sons above me, in verse 29. He should have had those sons executed. But, you know, with your prejudice and you, your your values are compromised and uh, you're going to compromise doctrine for the sake of your family. So anyway, there's the uh, this is the background for the story. Now the word despise shows up here in uh, verse 30. Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be despised lightly esteemed. God returns in kind. So if you're humble before the Lord, He will bless. If you're arrogant against the Lord, He will curse. This is the end to the proportion. This is how God deals with us. And the verb is to despise. Notice there's really no middle ground. <laughs> there's no third option. There's no, you're either honoring Him or you're despising Him. 
And this is what it comes down to. And when we have volitional choices, when, we, when we're tempted to drift, when we're tempted to, eh, you know, I'm not feeling that great and it's probably going to rain and, eh, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to invent excuses for why I can skip church on a given day. And, and all of those weaselly excuses just kind of, you can brush them off the table that when you stop and say, am I going to honor God today or do, do, do I despise God today? And uh, that's, that's the either-or dichotomy that he presented here in, uh, in a black-and-white contrast. I will honor those who honor me, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. In chapter 17, you got Goliath and a lot of despising that happened there. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ready with a handsome appearance. So he disdained him. He bazawed him. <laughs> and uh, the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you have come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Anyway, we know what happens next. <laughs> a well-placed stone knocked him out and got his own head cut off with his own sword. Second uh, Samuel 6.16 Pick one of these. Pick any of these. In, in any of these imageries, and I hope it helps. You know, just if you can visualize mighty Goliath standing there, and the disdain, the sneering, the contempt, the despising of this little runt kid David. That's how God views it when we're not living according to the Word of God, when when we're despising doctrine, when we're despising our ways, because we're not guarding our soul, we're not guarding the commandment. So hopefully some of these visuals will be very helpful in that regard. So um, this is after the Philistines had captured the ark and David gets it back and they're bringing it in uh, as a parade into uh, Jerusalem and uh, big celebration. Verse 14 says that uh, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of a trumpet. And it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she she despised him in her heart. Remember wives are commanded to respect their husbands, not to despise their husbands. It's like the polar opposite. And it's uh, you talk about ending a marriage and, and, and just a devastating damage that can be done uh, on a wife's part towards her husband, there it is. But she doesn't have the capacity to understand his joy, to, the spiritual capacity to understand the, the uh, thrill of having the ark return to, uh, to Israel. So they brought in the ark of the Lord, set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. David had burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And really, when she finally gets to uh, say her word here, down to verse 20, David returned to bless his household. Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. And it just betrays the poison of her soul and the, the terrible attitude that she had in despising David. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants. 
maids as one of the foolish ones, shamelessly uncovers himself. Well, he wasn't buck naked. He was wearing the linen ephod. We saw that earlier. Now he's not dressed uh, in his robes and all the glories of, of kingship and all. That wasn't the point. He was dressed in the simple linen ephod, uh, rejoicing in the return of the ark. And uh, anyway, so she was upset over, over that. Sometimes it's hard to preach verses like this. Sometimes it's hard to understand what it is exactly that's bugging that woman. But the Holy Spirit inspires it. It's in the Scripture. It's described. And even if men have a hard time understanding what's bugging the woman, uh, we can still live in an understanding way and we can still have shepherding leadership as unto the Lord. All right, enough of that. Chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. I wonder sometimes if, uh, I don't know, I'll let that go. All right, verses 9 and 10. Now in chapter 12, Nathan is rebuking David, and this is the exposure of the adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah and these things. And uh, Nathan says, you are the man. Remember, David was so furious at this parable, he says, that man deserves to die. And he's signing his own death certificates, what he's doing, because he's right. Uh, adultery carries the death penalty. Murder carries the death penalty. This, uh, this man deserves to die, and David's the man. And Nathan calls him on it. And so in this rebuke that comes, it says in verse 9, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. And so that's Bazaz, despising the Word of God. If your attitude towards the Word of God goes south, your ways are ruined. This is just the way it works. God has designed His Word to shape our path, and if we despise His Word, our path is headed for trouble. Verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So if you're despising the Word of God, you're despising God. Combine verse 9 and verse 10 and you see both of them in parallel. Despise the Word, you're despising God because it's His Word. No other way to understand that. Second Chronicles 36.16 Second Chronicles, whoever turns to Second Chronicles. 36.16 It's really kind of a summary statement for all of Israel's Old Testament history and why it is that Nebuchadnezzar is going to conquer and take them into captivity. This is during the reign of Zedekiah. And um, yeah, Zedekiah 21 when he became king, he reigned 11 years, he did evil in the sight of God. He rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar even though he had sworn allegiance. Uh, furthermore, all the officials of the priests, the people were unfaithful. So no political leadership, no godly uh, religious leadership because the priests are following the abominations of the nations. They defiled the house of the Lord which He had sanctified in Jerusalem. So the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by His messengers 
because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. And so you get prophet after prophet after prophet being sent during this time of apostasy. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. You know, God is slow to anger, but that doesn't mean that he's never to anger. He is slow to anger, and when you cross that line, how many prophets does it take? How many messengers does it take? How much rebellion? You know, when we're playing with fire, we don't know. If we've crossed the line or when we reach that point of no return, when we reach the line and God says that's it, there's no remedy. You have passed the point of repentance. So he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with a sword in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. And then you have the the remainder of the destruction in those following verses. But it came to their attitude towards doctrine. Psalm 15 and verse 4. Psalm 15 and verse 4. You know, in a lot of ways, this is a pretty easy message to preach because we're a Bible church after all. <laughs> Where the Bible should be our number one priority. It's what we do around here. We have visitors like last Sunday and they say, wow, you really, you really go deep into the Bible, don't you? I say, well, yeah. <laughs> it's on the sign. Bible church. All right. Psalm 15. O Lord, and I'm going to read this whole psalm, it's five verses long. O Lord, who may abide in your tent and who may dwell on your holy hill? Remember the mountain we came to, we saw on Sunday, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem? This is about how can a a human being born in sin, how can we possibly stand in the presence of God? He who walks, and so here's the answer, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Well, that's none of us and ourselves, but it is Jesus personally. And then it's all of us in Christ when his righteousness is imputed to our account. So don't try to accomplish this through human effort or works. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, he does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. This is sanctified despising. This is for a man of righteousness to look upon the reprobate you don't look upon the reprobate and, and with approval. You don't look upon the reprobate and say, oh well, it's okay, God will excuse that. We can't be excusing or accusing. We just have to be aligned with the righteousness of God in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money and interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent He who does these things will never be shaken. Notice how the personal dedication to the Word of God has practical effects in His ways. Verse 5 is an outworking of His character and His growth in the Word of God. Alright, that's Psalm 15. Psalm 22. I love Psalm 22. This is the words of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
David prophesies this a thousand years before the cross, but Jesus recites, I think he recites the whole thing top to bottom while he's hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Then verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Our Savior was willing to become this. He became our substitute. He endured the shame. He despised the shame. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with a lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, because He delights in Him. And these are the lies. If God loved you, He would get you off that cross. Let's see if God rescues you, if He delights in you. Obviously, if you're on the cross, He probably doesn't delight in you. And all these accusations, all this slander directed against our Savior as He is bearing our sins. It's a powerful psalm. You can get all the way down to verse... Um, he talks about bowls of Bashan, and he talks about... We, we discuss some of these things on Sunday as well. Um, and yet, he says, uh, verse 19, But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog, Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. That's his prayer. Save. Then verse 22. And what a hinge this this forms. He says, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Now he hasn't had the answer yet, but he's called for the answer. He's called for the answer. And now he's he's anticipating when the answer comes, this is the kind of praise he will deliver. He will have. Just as soon as this, you know, this work of redemption is done, as soon as I'm done dying here, when I can shout, it is finished, tetelestai, then here's the next message I intend to preach. It's going to be for the glory of God the Father in saving him. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And we'll be talking about that in Hebrews as well, the assembly, the mount of the assembly and the recesses of the north and and all of the uh, occupants of, of Zion. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him. Stand in awe of Him, all you descendants of Israel. For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him. But when He cried to Him for help, He heard So all of humanity may despise you, but God doesn't despise you. God honors the humble. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. All right, another glimpse of the assembly in Zion. So that's Psalm 22. Psalm 51, more despising. What's interesting is Psalm 51 is the confession psalm 
for the rebuke that we read earlier in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12. Because uh, in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan was telling David, you've despised the Lord. You've despised His word. You've taken Bathsheba for your wife. You've murdered Uriah. You despised God. And now David himself will use the word despised. He will use bazaar in his confession psalm when he says the uh, uh, verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. There was no sacrifice he could have brought. There was no burnt offering for his sin. He says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Isn't this something? He despised the word of God. He's now under judgment. But in his confession, in his repentance, in his broken spirit before the Lord, all he, what else can he do? All he can do is throw himself on God and confess, I'm guilty. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. All right. That's David's confession. The last two uses come in Isaiah. Isaiah 49.7 and Isaiah 53.3. They're also very well known to us. As far as messianic prophecies are concerned. The... uh, There is so much here. Let's see. Psalm 49, not Psalm, Isaiah 49. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. So who do you think we're talking about here? We're talking about Isaiah? Or we're talking about Jesus? Okay? Or both in a dual uh, way. Um, however much of this applies to Isaiah pales compared to the prophetic fulfillment of this as it relates to Jesus. Um, He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has concealed me. He has made me also a uh, select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. So ready to do a lot of damage once he is exposed and put to use. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. Fulfillment for Isaiah and prophetic for Jesus. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. That's the opposite of despising, is to be honored. He says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant? To raise up the tribes of Jacob, to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one. This is a message from God the Father to God the Son. This is a promise. And Jesus Christ, one of his titles is the despised one. How's that for a title? To the one abhorred by the nation, 
to the servant of rulers. Kings will see and arise, princes will bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Isn't that beautiful? That's beautiful. Our Savior is the despised one, and yet He's the precious one in the sight of God. My beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The whole world hates Him. The Father loves Him. So thus says the Lord, in a favorable time I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Do you think this uh, passage was comforting to Jesus when He was hanging on the cross? Because He knew who His Father was. He knew where the love was and the salvation that was promised. That's why he was so confident in citing Psalm 22. All right, then finally over to Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. You know, that's the only physical description we have of Jesus Christ in His humanity. You know, we've got a lot of artwork from the Renaissance. (laughs) We have a lot of painters that in their imagination painted all these images of Jesus. The Word of God gives us this. This is it. Until we get to Revelation when His hair is all white and the vision John has on Patmos. But otherwise... All we know is that He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. That's the description. He was despised and forsaken of men. That's His bazaar. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Intimate with grief. Like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem Him. And on that basis, isn't that something? He identified with us and we despised Him. But He went to the cross anyway. Praise God. Well, this is what despising is all about. This is what God says we do when we don't don't guard our ways. All right. Finally, guarding the soul should be among our highest priorities. Guarding the soul should be among our highest priorities. I got a lot of verses for this. Uh, when you're looking at Proverbs 16:17, he who guards the commandment guards his soul. And you think, eh, okay. Well, it's more than just a nice idea. It's critical. It is absolutely critical. And you have such a, a spectrum of scriptures to address this. And I think it's noteworthy that most believers are unaware of the necessity to guard the soul. Or the necessity to guard, as it says in Philippians. Uh, to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your request known. And the promise that He will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's necessary. So, quickly here before we wrap this up. I'm keeping an eye on the clock. I'm also watching my phone. The bus from Houston arrives at 10.50, so... Uh, that's why Lillian's not with us this morning. Lillian has gone to, to pick him up and then she'll be bringing him here. All right. So uh, Proverbs, uh, even before we get to chapter 19, we had a reference to this in sixteen seventeen. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. 
He who watches his way preserves his soul. So stay on the highway of the upright. Don't turn to the right or the left. Don't get off in the weeds. Stay in the Christian way of life. Run with endurance the race that's set before you. He who watches his way preserves his soul. We should be guarding the soul. It should be a top priority. Of course, 1916 is our passage today. He who keeps the mitzvah keeps his soul. So do what God tells you to do. It's good for you. Proverbs 21.23 He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from trouble. There's a practical aspect. (laughs) Say, in addition to guarding your soul, here's two steps that can get you there. Guard your tongue. Guard your mouth and your tongue. Well, isn't that the same thing? Yeah, just put two guards on it because it's hard to do. The book of James says, uh, man, that tongue is a forest fire. Good luck keeping it under control. Proverbs 22.5 Thorns and snares are the way of the perverse, or in the way of the perverse. He who guards his soul will be far from them. So don't even get close to the thorns and the snares. Be totally away. Matthew 16.26 What will a man give? It's not worth the whole world should not be exchanged for your soul. That's the value of it in Matthew 16, 26. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Something that's that valuable, something that's that pricey, uh, why would you be careless with it? Why would you not guard it? The whole world is not worth the price of a single soul. 2 Corinthians 12, 15. This is the sacrifice Paul makes. And uh, he says in verse 14, Here for this third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. We know about the first visit because that's recorded in the book of Acts. We only know about the second visit because he writes about it and speaks about a painful, sorrowful visit. And now he says, for the third time I am ready to come to you. That's also recorded in the book of Acts. He says, I will not be a burden to you. I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents are for their children. And he says, don't feel like you've got to support me while I'm there. Don't worry about it. God takes care of that. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. You see the value Paul places on it and the protection that he has as, uh, as an apostle. If I love you more, am I to be loved the less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. <laughs> I like to quote that, crafty fellow that I am. All right, Philippians 4, 7. Now this one I might slightly be cheating a little bit because the word soul isn't in there, but it does talk about your heart and your mind. The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I believe that's, those are facets of the soul. You've got the soul, the spirit, the heart, the mind, and all representative of the inner man, the invisible aspect of humanity. So be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So take it to the Lord. Pray about it. Give it to the God who loves you. 
And then rest. Rest because he loves you and he's taking care of things. To me, one of the most damaging things that ever happened to biblical Christianity is um, secular uh, counseling and psychiatry and Sigmund Freud and Adler and Jung and, and all these antichrists. None of them were saved. None of them were doctrinal. And how much of uh, even the J. Adams approach absorbs Adler and Jung? It's tragic. And so I've got problems and I'm going to go to pay 100 bucks an hour to talk to somebody about my problems. And what am I really doing? I'm spilling my guts. I am burying my soul to an unbeliever who has no business with my soul. Who, who, who should be shepherding my soul? Well, gee, how about the shepherding guardian of my soul, Jesus Christ? And how about the under-shepherd that he's assigned? Who's, uh, uh, to whose shepherding has my soul been allotted? And so we have the issues here. But see, other, rather than guarding your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus by surrendering it in prayer and submitting to the shepherding of the local church, um, people are paying, throwing good money after bad and, and bearing their soul to Satan. And it just breaks my heart. Anyway, taught a whole series on that once upon a time called Philosophy of Counseling. And... Um, I think we even made videos of that series. If I remember right, my brother made videos of that series. So it's well worth, uh, well worth your time. Finally, uh, Hebrews 13, 17, I just quoted it. So now you can read it for yourself and see that I didn't make it up. It's in the Bible. <laughs> um, along with 1 Peter 2, 25. Obey your leaders and submit to them because they're wonderful and they deserve it. <laughs> nope, not what it says. They don't deserve it. And they're not wonderful. They're sinners just like you. They're probably bigger sinners than you. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Accountable to Jesus Christ. Not accountable to you. Accountable to Jesus Christ. Let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you. If you make your shepherd's job a, a grief, that's a loss of reward. But if you make your shepherd's job a joy, that is profitable. That is rewardable. I don't know what they're going to call it when you get to heaven, but you can stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he'll hand you the you made your pastor's job a joy award. All right. Finally, 1 Peter 2.25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned. And here's the title. Not just to your Savior, to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Understand why that's a priority? I hope this is what um, Lewis was able to get across and Anybody else? Lewis just candidated it in, in uh, Stillwell, Oklahoma, and we're praying for that. And um, he's one of five candidates that they're bringing in. And and uh, my son is is on a pulpit committee now in, in Bellingham, Washington. We're praying for that. 
that uh, we're praying that these pulpit committees don't approach things like business. They don't approach things like corporate headhunters and scanning resumes and, and doing all this other earthly stuff. I pray that they're prayerfully listening for the voice of their shepherd because the sheep will know my voice, Jesus said in John 10. A good shepherd passage. I know my sheep, my sheep know me. My sheep hear my voice. These are the principles of shepherding. That They're not just hiring a uh, a preacher, yes, he's got to preach the word, yes, he's got to exegete Greek and Hebrew, he's got to teach the doctrine, but if he's a teacher and not a shepherd, you don't want him for your shepherd. You need somebody that's a shepherd, not just a hireling. The shepherd and guardian of your souls. So, we have that. Alright, that wraps up verse 16. We're going to move on and I'll save this. Um, when we come back in three weeks, we're going to talk about generosity. We're going to talk about the grace of God. And if you think there's no grace in the Old Testament, think again. Just because we have uh, more grace in the New Testament, but there's tons of grace in the Old Testament. And uh, it says in verse 17, he, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he, the Lord, will repay him for his good deed. So grace in action and generosity and how it is that you can lend to the Lord and to have God pay you back. How about that? <laughs> All right. But that's, uh, we'll save that for, for uh, next week. Remember, no class on the 11th or the 18th. We'll come back next when the next Proverbs class will be on the 25th. On the 25th. All right. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for Proverbs. And I pray. That, uh, that we all humble ourselves before your words, so that we will honor you, honor your word, guard our souls. Father, we don't want to despise your word. We don't want to despise our ways. The, uh, that path is just so full of thorns and, and it's just it's terrible. And we know it. The Bible tells us, the Bible teaches it clearly, and even, even if we didn't have the Bible, it would be pretty self-evident that uh, when, we, when we do what's right in our own eyes, Father, just by experience, we see time and time again how terrible the outcome is. So Father, thank you for the plain teaching of the Word of God. Thank you for um, the example that our Savior set for us. Even though He was despised, He took our place on the cross so we could have eternal life. Thank you, Father, for the gift of eternal life. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.